The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special bonus episode of the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. We're going to cut the theme song short a little bit this time. I don't want you to be fooled. This is not one of our regular shows. If you're just looking for literature, we'll be back with our next episode, which will probably be either Christopher Marlowe or Alice Munro. Both of those are in the works. Speaking of Alice Munro, you might want to run out and read The Bear Came Over the Mountain because we'll really be diving into that masterpiece of a short story. That's with Mike Palindrome. Now, I'm excited to share with you this episode today. It's a whole new podcast available on another channel, another feed. I'm going to play it in its entirety on this feed as well, just this episode. And then, if you like what you hear, you can find it in Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and wherever else you're looking for your podcasts. It's called The Smart People Doing Awesome Things Show, which we are abbreviating as The Smart Awesome Show. What's the show about? It's pretty much in the title, Smart People Doing Awesome Things, but let me give you just a little more context to those of you, my friends, my listeners, my companions on this journey through literature. As you might recall, they've had a continuous theme on this walk through the greatest books and authors in history, and that theme is this. Is literature dying? That's the question I've been Asking, I'm not sure that we as a civilization are turning to literature the way we once did, for the reasons we once did. Many of them have been replaced, many of those reasons. Literature is still there. It's still out there. It's still happening. There are lots of readers and lots of writers, but it's not something to take for granted. The importance may be waning. And I ask the question, could I still find the sustenance I once did in literature, and if not, is that because society is moving on, or is it just me personally? Have I come to that point in my life? Point of cynicism, skepticism, or get my needs met elsewhere? Probably shouldn't surprise you that this line of questions is, as I fully recognize, very specific to me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe maybe the problem is just me. Anyway, I hope that running this podcast, The History of Literature, would be a way for me to get back in touch with literature, to really plunge in, to engage, to see if I could draw from it the kind of intellectual nourishment that it once offered to me. And guess what? You guys have been great. The literature has been fantastic. I have no complaints, except I still feel empty. Part of this is the world, the course of events... When I started the show in 2015, I had no idea what the country, my country, America, had in store for us. I had no idea what was coming around the bend. And it's hard to blame literature for not anticipating this particular set of events and this particular need that suddenly arose. But something more was needed. Something more. I felt adrift. And turning to books, my usual move, has not filled the gap. So, I'm starting something new, based out of my own needs. I'll confess that to you, this intimate group that I have assembled here. (laughs) The History of Literature podcast listeners. I had 
something new on my mind. I had this phrase running through my mind like a mantra. The world is full of terrible problems. Let's talk to some people who are working to make it better. That was all it was. The world is full of terrible problems. Let's talk to some people who are working to make it better. It rang through me over and over until finally I realized it's not just the literature podcast, though I am planning to keep that up too. It's a whole new podcast, that idea. It's me looking for inspiration, looking for purpose, looking for reassurance that no matter how bad things get here in Washington, D.C., all over the country, all over the world, there are smart people who are trying their damnedest to make progress in all kinds of ways. It might be scientists studying cancer and looking for new ways to combat that awful disease, or public health workers partnering up with local organizations in Haiti to bring relief. Researchers working on problems like food safety or world hunger or the psychological development of children who have witnessed traumas. There are so many different people out there working in ways connected to the government and not. An inventor and an entrepreneur who's found a possible solution to coral reef bleaching and a new way to bring water to villages in developing nations. And I have, who else do I have on tap? Documentary filmmakers, specialist librarians, artists, writers, nonprofit leaders, scientists, professional explainers. We're going to talk to a big mix of people. But the goal is simple to understand what they're doing, to understand what problems they're facing, and what successes they can hope for, and what challenges are in their way, and to Better understand the people, not the celebrities, not the politicians, but people who are out there working, doing their best. Smart people doing awesome things. So here is a sample episode, the very first episode, in which I talk to a strategic philanthropist working on issues in higher education. I hope you choose to join me on that journey as well as this one. We'll be back soon on this feed with more literature. And as always, my thanks for listening. And in this case, we're giving this new podcast a try. Hello. Welcome to the first episode of The Smart Awesome Show. Wildfires continue to burn out of control. Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. No puppet. No puppets. No, you're the, the rush. Puppet. I just want to say, can we all get along? They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Okay, here we go. A brand new show with a real mission, a real purpose. 
Who am I? Well, does that really matter? Does it really matter? I'm a voice. Think of me as a voice, a voice coming through the noise, a voice in your ears. A host of sorts, a disembodied host, like Virgil, showing Dante around hell. <laughs> oh boy, we're off to a great start. I grew up in Wisconsin, the Midwest, where we tried so hard to be good, and we learned that life has limits. Then I went to school in Chicago, I moved to Europe, moved to Asia, went to school in Michigan, moved to Seattle, moved to Silicon Valley, moved to New York City. I've left a few moves out, but you get the idea. I moved around a lot, that's the point. And then I landed where I am now, Washington, D.C., the belly of the beast, the underworld, the capital of something, America, I know, the capital of something else, too, I think. And I'm mostly miserable. Oh, I have a wonderful wife and two beautiful kids. Life is good. And yet, life is not so good. I cannot cheer myself up. I read the news, and hey, whether you think the news is real or fake, we can agree that it's lousy, right? It's terrible news all day long. Terrible news. Remember, I'm here in D.C. That's, the, that's what it's the capital of. It's the capital of terrible news. If America is a... A big boat on this ocean. D.C. is the wheelhouse. And outside, a storm is raging and the wheel is just spinning around. That's my dream. Or should I say my vision, my nightmare vision. It happened to me once, actually. I was on a boat that gave architecture tours in Chicago. And the captain decided to play a prank on one of the deckhands. So he came below deck to surprise him. And he did. The deckhand was surprised to see the captain down there in the galley. And the captain shouts, Ha ha! Who's driving the boat, huh? And the deckhand ran upstairs to see and found that the wheelhouse was empty. The boat was just drifting forward without a pilot. The wheel wasn't spinning around. There wasn't a storm, but it was terrifying anyway. For that deckhand, 200 passengers were there watching a tour, and no captain. Nobody to make sure the boat didn't just veer off and hit the bridge or run into another boat. The wheelhouse empty and the wheel just slowly spinning on its own. Well, that deckhand was me. I'm still that deckhand. So enough about me. Let's talk about the show. Here's what I have in mind. I have this idea that in the middle of all this bad news, I might look for some people who are working hard to make this planet better and to talk to them about what they're doing. Check in to see how it's going because there are a lot of good people out there and they're doing a lot of good things. They are smart people doing awesome things. And I thought it might cheer me up to find out more about what they're doing. The problems they're tackling, the challenges they're facing, the triumphs, if that's the right word, successes, small and large. But in some ways, I'm not even looking for successes. I'm looking for people who are trying, who have given something up maybe to try to do some good in the world. People who are engaged in the fight. That's where I'm hoping to draw some inspiration. Not from politicians, not from celebrities, not from all the people who parade across the internet. I'm talking about people in the trenches, inventing things, discovering things, 
applying their skills and their creativity and their energy to things that they are passionate about. Smart people doing awesome things. We're going to start with a smart person named Raheem Rajan, who is described to me as a strategic philanthropist. He specializes in education, in trying to improve America's schools and its system of higher education in particular. He wants to make sure that it's working as it should be, as an elevator of opportunity. Who's against opportunity? Huh? Freedom and opportunity, you cannot be against those things. But is the elevator working properly? We'll hear from Raheem. I'm also fascinated by the idea that you can be a strategic philanthropist. He calls himself something else, but I think the title sort of fits. The title doesn't really matter anyway. Here's a guy who goes to work. He commutes to work. He gets in his car or on the bus. I don't know. He goes into an office. He probably sits at a desk, works on a computer. He's not a billionaire pulling out his checkbook and deciding where to send his money, what causes are deserving of his 30 seconds of his time and his money that he has plenty of, that he's doling out. There's more to it than that. Raheem is helping a foundation spend its money wisely. And I'm fascinated by that, by the fact that that's even a job that you can have. Raheem, as you'll hear, is very modest, but he could have done any number of things with his life. He could have chased money or power. He's chosen to do this. What's it like for him? I wanted to know. So here we go. Our first interview of this season of this show, let's see what we could learn from spending some time with a man who's working in the field of strategic philanthropy, Raheem Rajan. Okay, Raheem Rajan, thank you for joining me today on the call. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Raheem, I will be honest. I am trying to fight off some depression here, some depressing thoughts. These are some dark times, and I'm looking for smart people who are still doing some awesome things to hopefully cheer me up. I hope that's you. <laughs> well, I'll try. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure I'm smart, but I'm, and I'm not sure I'm awesome, but I... I uh, I feel like I'm doing something that's adding value to the world. So. Well, that's great. So your title or your occupation, it, it sounds almost like something out of a storybook to me. I think your title is Strategic Philanthropist. Is that right? I guess my, my official title is I'm a program officer. So oh, okay. I, I work at a foundation. I'm a, I'm a grant maker. But I would say that the foundation that I work at is a strategic philanthropy. So... It is a particular type of a foundation that invests in a particular way. And it's, it's a, I think it is distinctive from uh, a lot of other philanthropies. Right. Okay, so it's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That's correct. So it's, it's interesting to me because you basically have a job in philanthropy, although a lot of people I think who might think of a philanthropist might picture someone who has made a lot of money and then they're sort of in you know the mid midpoint of their life or toward the end of their life and they start giving it away and i think it's it's i don't know many people who actually are part of helping that person or that foundation give that money away so you've basically 
you've had a career in this type of work, and I'm just interested in how you got started and whether this was something you knew you, you always knew you wanted to do, or did you just find it along the way? That's, that's a terrific question. By no, by no means did I always think I would work in philanthropy. I, I do think that you know when I finished graduate school, I had originally wanted to go work at the United Nations, for example, mm, mm-hmm. and do do work in diplomacy or international relations. Unfortunately, that never panned out, and for a variety of reasons, my life took me elsewhere. But over time, I have, you know, I worked with a number of foundations as a grantee, and I was a recipient of funds mm. at the organizations that I worked at, and I managed some of those projects and executed some of those projects. So I had some interactions with foundations, and that, I think that's when it kind of made me interested. Uh, I became more interested in philanthropy and understanding, you know, how foundations work and um, what you can do in the world with philanthropy. Right. And what would you say that you can do in the world? Well, I think you can do a lot of things. You know, there are all kinds of different philanthropies. There's, you know, a community trust. There's private family foundations. There's corporate foundations. I think the United States is quite unique in the way that uh, we have the sector that we have in philanthropy. For example, if you go to some countries in Europe, they don't actually have the kinds of foundations that we do with that we have. And also the notion of, you know, the tax deferred income, right? Like Mm. in America, because of the tax code, these individuals are deferring tax on this income in order to uh, achieve charitable outcomes in society. And I think that we've created a kind of a legal and um, taxation regime that enables uh, philanthropy to thrive in this country. But, you know, you can do lots of different things with foundations. There's, you know, local foundations, uh, like, say, in Seattle, we have Seattle Foundation. You know, strategic philanthropy, I think, is a newer thing. I think it's perhaps in the last 20 years that there have been foundations emerging that have very specific kind of targeted strategic goals. Mm -hmm. And they're very focused on those kinds of goals and achieving those goals. Um, And I think that's, that's kind of an interesting phase of philanthropy that we're in right now. You also have new philanthropies emerging, including, you know, like the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative or mm. a whole host of other things. Omidyar is another. I wouldn't, maybe they're not a foundation. Some of those, like even Chan Zuckerberg is legally not a foundation, but they have kind of a, a philanthropic mission, so mm-hmm. to speak. So there's all kinds of innovative things happening in philanthropy right now that's exciting. So let's let's talk about strategic philanthropy just for a second so I'm clear on what you mean by that. I'm imagining that it's you get sort of a broad mandate, you're working, you know there's a problem that you want to tackle, and then people like you will assess uh, what's the best way to address this problem. Should we be, how do we apply the funding or the money that we have in order to have the most efficient and maximum impact. Is that roughly what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I think there are two kind of core components and I'm just thinking this out loud. So there could be others, but the two that jump out at me is, you know, number one, devising and developing a strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think 
you know, that's a team of grant makers, you know, at the Gates Foundation. You know, we actually have 27 different, 28 different strategies. And each of those strategies is trying to um, attack or solve a big problem. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the strategies are fairly comprehensive. They're fairly ambitious. So, for example, eradicating malaria or polio. Right. Those are two different strategies. The strategy that I'm a part of is essentially around uh, improving American higher education so that higher education resumes its ability to become the engine of social mobility and serve low-income students of color better. In this country, uh, we don't have an equitable education system. So the strategy that I'm a part of is trying to reverse that trend and transform American higher education. So imagine, you know, I think one of the key components in strategic philanthropy is developing strategies and investing against those strategies. I think another important element of strategic philanthropy has a lot to do with, you know, measurement and evaluation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. learning and evidence. You know, each of each of these strategies can do that in different ways. But the, the core question is, are we having an impact with our investments? Right. And can we actually see a path to achieving our strategy's goal in the ways that we are deploying these resources, right? Right. So I think that's different. I think strategic philanthropy, in a sense, has an objective, has a goal, and it's a measurable goal. And they're assessing and assembling data to understand whether that goal is being achieved, and if so, how and by when. And, you know, that's not to say that other forms of philanthropy are any less valid. I mean, I think, you know, there are foundations that are family foundations, for example, that serve local charitable causes. That's a perfectly valid form of philanthropy. In fact, some of, uh, even some of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's funding, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, is directed in ways that are aligned to the family's interests that might not really fit the rule of strategic philanthropy. Mm. But, you know, they've decided that as part of their stewardship and citizenship in the Pacific Northwest, that they would like to support a variety of causes that they may not do so nationally or globally. Right. So, you know, there's, there's no right way to do this. There's just different forms of philanthropy. Right. So if we look at education and the problem that you're tackling now, what would be some of the different types of funding or projects that you might be examining to see if those would be a good fit for the Gates Foundation's strategy? That's a great question. So we invest across a pretty broad array of endeavors and activities, you know, ranging from policy recommendations, Mm. institutional transformation efforts. So for example, there are colleges in the country that are, you know, they're very cognizant of the, of the problems that they're facing. And they're trying to, in a sense, disrupt themselves and do things differently so as to advantage uh, these underserved populations. Mm-hmm. So for example, I'll give you one example. There's a, a consortium of public universities called the University Innovation Alliance. And it's about a dozen or so public universities that have, um, you know, come out and been very thoughtful and transparent about setting certain goals in terms of outcomes, successful outcomes 
for disadvantaged students and students mm -hmm. of color. And so, you know, those universities include, for example, Georgia State University or Arizona State University, uh, University of Central Florida. One of the interesting things about this collection of universities is that they are trying to define success not as exclusion or elitism, essentially, but as inclusion in mm. the fact that, like, you know, these universities don't pride themselves on who they exclude. They're actually priding themselves on who who is included and the successful outcomes they are producing for those students. Right. It's a very it's kind of a really unique and powerful paradigm shift where, you know, a lot of the traditional prestige in higher education was focused on exclusivity and essentially like, you know, eliteness. You know, how how elite are we? And these universities are saying, no, we we are land grant universities, we have a public mission. Mm -hmm to better serve our nation and to serve our states and our citizens. And so we are going to grow. We are going to do a better job. The threshold of quality is how good of a job do we do in terms of serving a wider and more diverse array of students rather than fewer, uh, more privileged students. Right. So what? what... So that's just one example. Yeah. So how would the Gates Foundation fit into that? Is that something where they would say, we can partner with you and, and help give you some resources that would enable you to continue down this path? Or are you interested in monitoring it to see uh, how well it's working and, and helping on that end? Or what would your involvement be? Yeah. So that, in, in, I mean, in, in that example, that's not a grant that I manage, but um, you know, in that example, I think our resources are essentially supporting that network of universities. Mm-hmm to come together, to share lessons, to explore solutions together, to implement solutions across multiple campuses, really to, to bring leadership together from multiple campuses. I mean, you know, this is also a novel idea that, you know, that universities shouldn't just be competitive. Right. Although they might be competitive on the football field, including some of those universities. In practical terms, they have shared missions and aligned right. visions of really being much more democratic, in terms of serving a, a more diverse array of students and, and being productive for those students. You know, they want to learn from one another. I think that's a really refreshing attitude. And, you know, universities are living in very tough times. A lot of these public research universities, as well as the community colleges, have had dramatic cuts in funding post-recession. Some of that funding has come back, but still not enough, right? I mean, um, you know, many of these institutions still have tremendous gaps in terms of the resources they have versus right. what they need. Right. So what's another example? Is there one, is there a project that you've managed that you're particularly proud of or that was particularly successful? Yeah. I'm, let me think about that. Certainly. I think there, you know, there's projects that I've funded, for example. So my portfolio is really about innovations in teaching and learning. Mm. And mm -hmm. You know, one of the one of the things that I've been investing in now for a few years is, you know, improvements in undergraduate courses. So, for example, you know, many students go to college and, you know, they arrive on campus and they start taking some of these courses that are part of their general education requirements. And they encounter a lot of challenges uh, in those courses. And, you know, so, for example, your introductory science courses, like your bio, your mm. general general chemistry, et cetera. 
And, you know, if you want to become a doctor, if you had ambitions of becoming a scientist, success in some of these early entry general education courses is super critical. Yeah. Oftentimes the math courses are a, a big challenge, you know, for many students, especially for some of these students that are coming from underprivileged backgrounds where they've had a very different high school experience. If you think about the amount of preparation that students from wealthy backgrounds mm. receive, mm-hmm. whether they went to preparatory schools, whether they had SAT boot camps or whatever it is, uh, all the summer camps they might have had, all the yeah. supplementary learning they've had over the years, you begin to create like achievement gaps, you know? Yeah. And so um, the question then is like, how can these courses in college serve these kinds of students, right? Because You know, you have students coming with very different levels of background knowledge, and some students obviously have, you know, already taken advanced AP courses and are able to kind of breeze through or jump into higher courses. But for many of these low-income students, uh, this is their only chance. You know, this is the only chance they're going to get. And if they don't succeed in those courses, they're probably going to be put on a very different track, right? Or worse, they're going to think that, you know, college is not for them. They're just not cut out to be part of that experience. Yeah. So what some of the things that I've been interested in is, you know, how do we shift some of these large introductory general education courses from a pure lecture model, uh, which is, you know, very difficult. Imagine you're a student, you're coming from a high school where you had 25 students in your classroom, and now you're part of a, a kind of a, collegiate experience where you're one of 400 students Hmm. in an auditorium. And when you have a question or when you don't understand something, you know, the professor's out on front in the stage kind of lecturing, you're kind of lost, you know, and you don't, you don't have any recourse to get any additional help or, you know, you're intimidated uh, because, you know, this is, this just feels very different. Right. So, you know, one of the, one of the strategies there is to, and the research is proving this out, is to um, what they call kind of flip the class, right? So to create more of a blended hybrid experience where students are actually perhaps they're watching lectures or they're doing something outside of the classroom to understand the materials. Maybe they're doing the readings. Maybe they're doing some assignments. They're doing some assessments. But when they come into the classroom, it's actually much more of an active classroom. And uh, the professors and the TAs are doing projects. They're doing um, peer-to-peer learning in groups. They might be uh, actually working on um, case studies or discussing a, an active case study. So the idea is that, or they even could be doing their problem sets in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that, you know, rather than you being at home at 11 o'clock at night trying to finish your problem set in chemistry and kind of, you know, banging your head against the wall, what if you're in the classroom and you're surrounded by your fellow students and the TAs and the professor and you're working through those problems together and now there's ample resources around you. You're not the only student that might be struggling in that problem set and you can just get feedback and kind of get answers. So, so a number of universities, for example, um, including Arizona State University, uh, University of Central Florida, there's tons of universities now colleges also are beginning to really look at this model as a way of improving success for all students in these like critical general education courses. 
Mm. And I think there's real evidence that this model is a better model of teaching these subjects and that students are doing better. And I think there's a lot of promising activity in that area. And I think yeah. it's, you know, it's, the time has come. You know, it's interesting for me, like in K-12, pedagogy is a very important thing. You know, teachers, mm -hmm. they go to the school of ed, they get a degree in education, they learn how to teach. Right. In higher education, people get a PhD, yeah. right? And, and they continue to get rewarded for their research or their publications, but the teaching is exactly. very secondary. Exactly, exactly. Mm. You know, I can really identify with this issue, Raheem. I wish this had been around when I went to college because <laughs> I went to a, like a, basically a, it was a small town, rural high school. And yeah. I ran out of math classes to take when I was in 10th grade. And so for yeah. two years, I didn't have any to take. And then when I got to college, yeah. you know, I took the placement test. And I remember getting the results back and everyone had been joking that if you bombed the placement test, you'd get placed into uh, math for jocks. And yep. so I came back and I said, you know, oh, yeah, it looks like I, I got into math for jocks. And then somebody looked at my, my sheet and said, oh, actually, you didn't even make it into that. You're in math for rocks. Wow. It was Yeah. And it was such a um, and I had grown up. And I had always felt like yeah. I was good in math and that was a strong yeah. subject for me. Yeah. And then suddenly I just felt like I'm way behind. I can never catch yeah. up. I have to cross off all these majors like philosophy or yeah. anything in the sciences yeah. Yeah. because it'll take me three years to catch up. And then when I was in the classroom, I felt like I was in there with a lot of students who really hated math or who yeah. had had math yeah. and, and just were looking for the easiest you know way to get yeah. out of the math requirement or something. And it really yeah. was like a stigma. And I really felt, you know, I really felt like it was sort yeah. of unfair, but it changed how I looked at myself and what I thought it limited my own sense of my own possibilities. And uh, I think it's it's great that you're, helping people who might be in that kind of situation. And it would be yeah. great if the colleges could identify yeah. kids who are coming out of high schools yeah. like that and say, this so is me, somebody. Let me, um, yeah. You know, because I work in philanthropy and, and, uh, and in this area, let me just mention a few statistics that will blow your mind. Okay. Mm. So these yeah. are statistics that both highlight the inequity of our higher education system, but also just what you referred to in terms of the math issue. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, just on the on the topic of the math issue, sixty percent of all community college students in this country, okay, mm -hmm. which is essentially half the population that goes to post secondary. So half the pop half of all students that go to college in this country they go to community college, right? Okay, and sixty percent of those students actually need remedial math mm -hmm. in this country. Mm. So these are students that finished high school for the most part. Maybe some of them are working adults or that, you know, they finished high school five years ago and maybe they decided to go and get a, you know, associate's degree or maybe they're decided to go get another associate's degree, whatever it is. Yeah. 60% of those students end up needing some sort of remedial math. Now, here's the kicker. Of those students that go into those remedial math programs, only 15% will ever get out of that program and even just get to the college-level math course. Wow. 
so you start doing the math there and you start thinking about like, okay. And so these are students that went to college, yep. decided that, okay, I'm, I want to become a, a lab technician or a phlebotomist or a, whatever it is, a, yeah. a welder, you know? Yep. And I need to, I need to, I need certain math courses to be able to get an associate's degree in that program. And they can't even, you know, they can't even succeed in the math in order to succeed in those programs. I mean, just think of, you know, all the human talent we're losing because of this issue in math. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's just staggering. The other statistic that I wanted to share with you, which is actually much more disturbing, and it has a lot more to do with about the inequity of our higher education system. So, uh, and this is a bit of a wonky kind of statistic, but just bear with me. Okay. So in this country today, in America, if you come from the top quartile of income in this country, in terms of family income, but your high school performance was at the bottom quartile, mm -hmm. you have an 80% chance of getting a bachelor's degree in this country. So again, top quartile of family income, bottom quartile of um, academic achievement. Right. If you flip that, if you flip that ratio and you came from the bottom quartile of family income, but you had achievement at the top quartile of high school performance, mm -hmm. you only have an 8% chance of getting a bachelor's degree. Wow. That's right. It's a, it's an order of 10 less. You know? That is um, incredible. So it's basically those right? students are, they're facing probably a lot of economic pressures and, and hardships that end up sort of conspiring to knock them out of college, so to speak. Exactly. There's, I mean, there's a whole myriad set of issues. Some of it has to do with, you know, undermatching, which is, you know, these students could probably do a lot better at more selective, more rigorous institutions, mm. but, but they've never, you know, like this is another crazy statistic. Most students in this country, they go to the college or university that's nearest them right. in terms of where they live. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's like, you know, the, the number of students that go to the elite kind of private or yeah. you know, even, even the elite public universities, such a minuscule amount of students, 5%, you know, 7% of all U.S. higher education students, the vast majority of students go to open public, either community colleges or less selective four-year universities, yeah. commuter schools, et cetera. And so these low-income students, you know, maybe they have life issues, maybe they have family issues, they're probably working, uh, multiple yeah. jobs, you know, they, they've got all kinds of issues. Sometimes it's also uh, contextual, like, Nobody in their family has ever gone to college. They're right. first generation. So right. they don't even know, like, what's the process to apply or how do I get financial aid or, you know, which, where should I go? Yeah. Everybody in my neighborhood says I shouldn't go. Right. So I'll do something you know, that's so not too dramatic or too extreme. It'll just be, you know, I'll apply to the college that's down the street. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, I had a, a friend in high school who he's just a brilliant guy and he did really well on the standardized testing uh, scores and he had heard that Harvard offered a farm scholarship or a couple of farm scholarships for uh, kids who had grown up on farms and he had grown oh. up on a family farm and so 
he thought, oh, well, I have this really strong test score and Harvard, you know, how many farm kids out there are there? And maybe this is something I could apply for. So he went into the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor wouldn't give him an application and just said, wow. you know, what do you mean, Harvard? Nobody from here goes to Harvard. And he said, well, there's this farm scholarship. They're apparently looking for kids who grew up on farms. And he said, the guidance counselor yeah. said, yeah. well, how would you get there? You know, your your family yeah. can't afford to drive you out yeah. there or or fly you out there. And it just it just yeah. ended his dream, even though I look yeah. back on it and think it's pretty rare when you yeah. get a fit like that where it would have made a lot of sense yeah. to go. But it's it's just indicative of the kind of yeah. not everybody is in the has the luxury of dreaming big or dreaming on a national scale. Yeah, it's true. It's a, it's a sad, it's a sad, it's a sad truth about our, our country. And I mean, in some ways, we're very privileged because our country is better than so many other countries and much more fortunate than so many other places. But we still, we still have some, you know, incredible gaps in achievement and education and attainment, uh, in this country. And race is a huge predictor. Income is a huge predictor of, of those inequities. And we, you know, we can't, pretend that that's not the case when it is. Well, and now as you're describing this, I can kind of see where the Gates Foundation and where you might be able to fit into this, where you have communities and colleges who maybe identify this type of issue and they're looking around saying, who else has tried to solve this problem and what have they done? And it's good to have a place that is able to apply some learned lessons and give some yeah. advice to colleges that are trying to fix this. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the incredible part of the Gates Foundation story, and I think it's really a testament to the founders and the family, Bill and Melinda and Bill Sr., is just the level of ambition. Mm-hmm. It's really a level of ambition. I mean, in the sense that, you know, higher education is a trillion dollar business, right? In the sense that, when you think about all the money, all the endowments, you know, all the state yeah. budgets and federal Pell dollars, and if you start adding all that up, we're talking a gazillion dollars, right? Yeah. Our, our little itty-bitty strategy has approximately about $100 million to affect change every year in that space. So that's where, that's where, it be, that's where strategic philanthropy gets really interesting because, yeah. in a sense, you know, the impact of our investment has to be tenfold or twentyfold or thirtyfold. Right. Because we can't solve this with our dollars alone. You know, right. like, it really does require, you know, investments having an impact far beyond the initial investment. Right. Right. And that's where the monitoring, that's where I would guess the monitoring would come in. You don't want to spend 10 years investing that and then look back and say, boy, we really, uh, we might as exactly. we might as well not have been involved at all. We just wasted the money. Exactly. You want to make sure that it's exactly you see where it's maximizing the impact. You know, you said something earlier that j- just brought a smile to my face. You said I invested in, or you were talking about investments that you've made, and it just strikes me what a what <laughs> what a what an incredible position you're in to be able to say something like that, where most of us. You know, we maybe have our our money in our mutual funds, and we're hoping that we're investing right. in something that that is socially conscious and does some good. But yeah, 
what does your day look like? Are you are you <laughs> are you going to a lot of meetings? Are you on the phone a lot? Are you traveling yeah. around the country? Uh, what do you what do you do? That's a great question. So I always tell people that the job of a at least a Gates Foundation program officer, I think you have like three or four jobs in a sense. So one is I think you are an investor in the sense that you are looking for investments. You're looking for ideas to support. You're looking for innovations. You're looking for uh, change makers. You know, you're looking to support people or organizations that are going to have a, a, a dramatic impact, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and produce like certain social good. Um, so that's one thing. You're an investor. You're a strategic investor. The second thing you are, I think, is you're actually a, a manager of existing investments, right? Like right. it's not enough to just make investments. You've actually got to manage the investments you've made. Right. So I think that's another aspect of the job. Uh, that's a really critical part of the job because, you know, I think oftentimes what I hear from some of our grantees is that, you know, they, they're the first to say like, yeah, we need the money. We need the funds. Uh, this investment is critical, but we also need the thought partnership. We mm. need the, yeah. You know, the opportunity to interact with you guys and learn from you all. And, you know, they find a lot of our grantees find value from the thought partnership with the foundation, but also with with other grantees and the community, you know. Yeah, that's like uh, that's like Shark Tank. Do you ever watch Shark Tank? Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. always yeah. doing that where it's like this person is just going to cut me a check, but I want to. I'm, I'd rather do the deal with this other person because he's the one who does a clothing line or he's the one who can, exactly. knows how to help me grow my business. Exactly. I think the third thing, the third job we have is really understanding the field and where the field is going and mm-hmm. key trends, key evidence, key research out in the world, right? So that, you know, that, that, that we make smart investments. And so that requires you know, that does require going to conferences and reading and talking to people. And, you know, and I think that's just a, a core part of the job. Yeah. Um, and then I think that, you know, the fourth part of our job is actually, I think that it's a really other interesting facet of the job is being an internal spokesperson for that work within the foundation. Right. So I think you have to be an advocate for your work mm. uh, within the foundation Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're a big foundation. We have offices all over the world. We've got you know, in Seattle more than a thousand employees. Yeah. 27, 28 different strategies. And each strategy, you might have like 10 or 15 different investment areas. So, you know, you have to, you have to represent the work. You have to, uh, be able to articulate kind of the impact of the work. Right. Uh, you have to be able to showcase both lessons learned as well as some of the potential, um, improvements that are resulting from that so it's a it's a complicated job i would say yeah sounds a little Um, more stressful that part of it sounds a little stressful yeah (laughs) yeah that part can be stressful you know (laughs) um i guess that's that's one of the facets of strategic philanthropy is people are always trying to chase impact and try to understand yeah can we do it faster can we do it cheaper can we do it sooner you know um right yeah so that's definitely part of the job but I would say the best part of the job, if I was to say one thing about our job, is just the privilege of actually spending time with students or being on a college campus uh, uh, that's doing yeah. phenomenal work for students. I, I must say, like, I always tell people, like, you know, the work doesn't happen here at the foundation. Mm-hmm. The work happens out in the field, right? Right. That's probably the best part of my job is, is helping to enable others yep. to do 
incredible things, you know, yeah. in service of these students. Yeah. So if someone wanted to become a program officer, do a lot of people, what are their backgrounds? Do they have, do they, are they have economics backgrounds? Are they in investment banking or what, how do they get yeah. to where you are? That's a great question. You know, this is one of those career pathways where I don't think there's actually like a definitive way, you know, yeah. like, um, yeah. you know, I, I can say at the Gates Foundation, a lot of the program officers have spent, you know, a decade or more out in the field, you know, doing work. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're a scientist, maybe they're a, you know, an AIDS researcher, or, mm. you know, they've worked on the front lines of international development. They've worked in microfinance, whatever it is. Uh, you know, we have people of all different backgrounds, all different educational backgrounds. So there, I don't think there's really a cookie cutter right. kind of type of people. But what I would say is that, you know, one of the through lines and one of the commonalities I see is that these are people who care passionately about social impact. Mm-hmm. And they've also developed some expertise in a certain area. Right. And so whenever I, you know, whenever I meet younger people, for example, um, students at business school or people who think of philanthropy as a potential career, I always tell them, you know, like develop a set of expertise out in the field and then bring that into philanthropy. You know, but I'd also say that philanthropy is a field where I think you can develop proficiencies and expertise. And there is an expertise in managing grants and, you know, making investments and, you know, relations with grantees and all of those things. And, you know, it's like any other profession where I think there are things you learn and skills you develop over time and, you know, proficiencies to be attained. Right. But I don't think there's like one, you know, academic path into that, into that discipline. Yeah. So when you look at, and this, maybe this will be the last question. When you look at your uh, program area, and you are forecasting in the next five or 10 years, do you have a sense of optimism? Um, I do. I definitely do. Yeah. Um, I definitely, I think it's, it's very hard to do this work um, in the sense that, you know, the, the fruits of our combined labor and collective labor are by no means immediate. You know, when we make mm-hmm. investments, Sometimes you don't see the results for two years or five years. And it's actually really interesting. Like, you know, I've been at the foundation six years. And in some ways, I've been very fortunate because I've been able to make some investments and see the returns of those investments. And as a result, make additional investments Mm -hmm. to learn from those earlier investments. And I think that that's been really powerful to be able to see that and to learn from that. Yeah, I absolutely believe that I am optimistic I'm I'm actually an optimistic at heart and uh, yeah. probably die an optimist. Um, <laughs> I, I do believe we're making an impact. I do believe that there there is a, a cadre of colleges and universities and conversations that are happening in this country, for example, about social inequity in education. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that we have an educational system that used to be an elevated opportunity and that elevator isn't working right now. A lot of students are not succeeding and they're frankly not able to afford good education. Right. Yeah, I think we can do better and I think there are there are examples now of colleges that are that are actually doing better and yeah. producing better outcomes. 
Well, it's really exciting to me because I think, you know, one way of addressing the problem might be to just try to throw a lot of money at it and to say we're going to fund scholarships. And even though I'm sure that would be welcome in a lot of areas, it's exciting to think that there are colleges and foundations that are taking a more thoughtful approach and saying, is that really the the source of the problem? And can we address this in a way that might be a little bit more impactful and a little bit have a little bit more of a widespread change across the system. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think that's what that's what we're trying to do. Okay. Well, Raheem, you have done your job on the call, which is to I feel much better than I did when I started. I am very uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad awesome. that you are uh, working on this, and to know that you and your colleagues are are hard at work and I wish you and, and all of your colleagues all the best. And Thank let's, you. let's hope that uh, we're able to turn things around in the education sector. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. There we go. Wasn't that great? I feel better now. I truly feel better. Raheem Rajan working to make the world a better place. My thanks to Raheem for joining me. And to you for joining me. But hey, we're not done. I have a bit more. One more idea for cheering ourselves up. Some creative people. Creative people, artists, often lift my spirits when times are bad. Comedians, film directors, poets, all kinds of creative people. Painters, chefs, and musicians. Is there anything better, anything better equipped to cheer you up than a good song? I'm not talking about... Happy music, I, I like those songs too, mostly. But I found that the best music, for me at least, has a little sadness to it. Just a little. Just a little sadness as long as there's some hope or some feeling, some humanity. My favorite Christmas song is probably Frank Sinatra singing I'll Be Home for Christmas, a song from World War II, where the singer ends up saying he probably won't be home for Christmas. It will probably just be in his dreams. It's very beautiful and moving. It gets me. In a strange way, it gives me hope. The song I've chosen today is like that too. It has a similar theme, although I didn't know that until a few weeks ago. The song is, I Say a Little Prayer. I've been using this song, the Aretha Franklin classic, to cheer me up ever since I was in college. I have a good story about how I came to the song, but you don't need to hear that to know what this song does or what Aretha can do. She must have ten songs like this. When Aretha brings the power, oh man, the world tilts. So, when the blues come my way, when they knock on my door, when they tap me on the shoulder and say, here we are, <laughs> I turn to Aretha. I find this song and I play it loud. It helps. Now, here's the thing. I didn't know that this was about Vietnam. It was written during the Vietnam era. It was about saying a little prayer for someone who's been called up, who's abroad, facing danger. No wonder I like it. It's got that feeling to it, that edge, that tinge, that reminder of clouds. Even the brightest blue sky is improved by a few clouds. They are part of our world. They are part of its beauty. Here's something else I didn't know, or at least something I never thought about. It was originally a Dionne Warwick song. That makes sense. It was written and produced by Burt Bacharach and Hal David, and Dionne Warwick did many of their songs, and they made a lot of great music together. They thought she had the perfect voice for their music. 
Their version of I Say a Little Prayer is good. It's fun. It's bouncy. It has horns. It's light and easy, and it's inspiring in its own way. It's kind of a clean version of the song. I don't mean the lyrics. I mean the sound is clean. It's professionally done. Good work of craftsmanship. And Burt Bacharach and Hal David didn't like it. It was a hit. It zoomed up the charts. It made them a lot of money, but they didn't think they got it right. They thought the tempo was wrong, a little rushed. Bacharach later said he didn't even want to release it. He didn't think the song, this smash hit, was what he and David had had in mind. Everyone else was listening and enjoying it, buying it, but the guys who wrote it only heard the flaws. Bacharach said he thought it sounded a little nervous. So then, along comes Aretha. Less than a year later, she redid the song, not with Bacharach and David. She recorded it in Detroit, and the two of them, the songwriters, heard the song on the radio. That was the first time they heard it, this song of theirs, performed by this other singer. And they looked at each other in astonishment because they knew that this was the song they had wanted to hear. They knew from its first few seconds that Aretha and all the musicians working with Aretha had really captured the song. For the next 50 years, when Bacharach was asked what his favorite version of one of his songs is, he would say, It's Say a Little Prayer by Aretha Franklin. It's a beautiful story. Imagine that you are working at something. Maybe you're an artist, but maybe not. Maybe you're just you, living your life, making a meal, or maybe you're working with your kids, helping them with their homework. Maybe you're driving your parents to their doctor's appointment or working at your job, which has its ups and downs. Maybe you're just being you, alive and in the world, and you are doing your best at something. And maybe someone else comes along and jumps in to help. And you know that even though you may be slightly disappointed in yourself, the project you're doing is still worth doing because it might lead to unexpected greatness. Your actions might lead to unexpected greatness. Remember, Aretha couldn't have done this without Burt Bacharach and Hal David, and they couldn't have achieved it without her. We need people who start the project and people who are there to move things forward even a little farther. We all need each other. So, let's find our inspiration. Let's listen to I Say a Little Prayer. First, we'll hear a little of the Dionne Warwick version, which is very good. And then we'll hear from Aretha Franklin, whose version is, My God, there aren't words. And we'll get through this, people. We will make it. Life is good, and we're going to make it. The moment I wake up, 
something before I put on my makeup. I say a little prayer for you. Walk on in my hair now. And wondering what dress to wear now. I say a little prayer for you. Forever, forever, you stay in my heart and I will love you forever. I say a little bit for you. At work, I just.